You're listening to the 66 Podcast, the podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. And today, we're going to do something that is unprecedented in the history of the 66 Podcast. Just what, like a year and a half running now, two years? Um, yeah, I think a couple of years. Yeah, two years. Because uh, last year, well, it was actually the this anniversary episode of episode 75. Yeah, this is the anniversary of the dreaded camp episode from last year. Uh-huh. Bird chirping. Yes. But what we're doing today, we're going to cover 1 Timothy 3, and we're also going to look at Titus chapter uh, 1. Yeah. This is the first time we have... Mixed books and chapters. I mean, we've yeah, done right. more than one chapter mm-hmm. on many occasions. This time we're doing one chapter from 1 Timothy then we're skipping the rest of 1 Timothy, skipping all of 2 Timothy, and we're going right on into Titus 1. Titus 1, but they are very closely related. I think it's better to handle the material that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're doing 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus in succession. Yeah. So, But but we do, on the website, they'll be represented separately. Um, right. But I, I think that's the best we could do. Uh, you know, it's it'd be kind of weird just a few weeks later to go right back to the same subject mm. and First Timothy and Titus address just the same thing. So we're going to yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, what we're going to be looking at, we're looking at qualifications for elders and qualifications for deacons. And the list here in First Timothy 3 is very similar to the one in Titus 1. Aren't there 14 in both? I got that mm, right. It depends on how you count them, I think. Okay, I think I was. I didn't count them. This fourteen just for the elder, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, in both. Yeah, but the they're elders, not the same fourteen. Not exactly. Right. Well, so it's kind of a subjective. Yeah, I'm seeing a couple of different lists here. This one's yeah. got actually fifteen in both for elders. Don't don't you um, think you should have counted those before you hit record? Eh. Well, you know we got to make ourselves. <laughs> Human here, we can't oh yeah, be right you really anything. did, but you're pretending. Yeah, right. To condescend to our audience. Yeah, right? we scripted that. Um, so now but, we need to scrap it. Yeah, we're talking about elders and deacons. Very similar lists in Timothy three one, and also in Titus one. Um, it's been summed up uh, by George Knight like this: uh, the items or the qualifications focus on two different areas. Number one, personal self-discipline and maturity. And number two, the ability to relate well to others and to teach and to care for them. These two are intertwined. So it's it's an interesting topic to be looking at. But what we're going to do first is, Drew's got our outline. We're just going to kind of work through the text, uh, first of all. And then we'll come back, like we always do, and dig deeper into these in the next section. Yeah, and the outline is going to be very, very simple today. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about the qualifications for elders, and number two, the qualifications for deacons. Um, but before I do that, I want to remind everybody about how this ties in to the overall structure of First Timothy. Uh, as we look at it this way, I can just really see where Paul's mind is going. First of all, he talks about the drifting nature of the church at Ephesus and how Timothy has got to be an anchor in that church to keep them from shipwrecking their faith and swerving from the truth. In chapter 2, which we discussed last week, he turns to, you know, pretty much the whole chapter is on male spiritual leadership in the assemblies Mm -hmm. and how a woman should not exercise authority over the man. And so um, that's chapter 2. And he's still kind of in that mode when he gets to chapter 3 because as he speaks of elders and deacons, it's very clear that he's speaking only of men. Um, yeah. You know, and the qualifications explain that, so I won't get ahead of myself. Just trying to show the relationship, chapters 2 and 3 could have been included together, I think, because they're so similar. Yeah, and I do think it's good to note, since we're doing this on uh, the chapter in Titus as well, that Timothy and Titus are in very different situations here, right? So Timothy is at a congregation that's been established for a while in Ephesus. Right, right. And Titus is in a place where... There hasn't been a congregation quite, or it's not established as well because Paul is telling Titus there to appoint elders, right? Yes. So in every city in in Crete, which yeah. was a little island south of Italy. Mm-hmm. So we have I got that right. So Titus, yeah. if you're listening to this episode, did I just describe Sicily? Crete's right down there too, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. 
I should have done my homework. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it was one of the Mediterranean islands. Again, Ephesus good. is in the main, in the mainland of uh, Asia Minor, although it's a port city. It's right there on the ocean as well. Uh, I think what you're yeah. saying is that Ephesus had been established before, maybe long before At the churches in Crete. to have elders. Or so it seems. Yeah, yeah. Because um, Titus is going to appoint new elders, so maybe Titus is giving them their first round of elders. But with Timothy here in Ephesus, uh, it's interesting that he starts off talking about the false teachers, and then he's going into, okay, well, this is how leadership's broken down in the church, and here's what your leaders should look like. So maybe some of these things are kind of anti some of the false teachers that are around, you know, the opposite of them. So Timothy is getting... The same qualifications now as Titus, but it's just interesting. Timothy's situation and how he's going to make this apply and try to get maybe his current leadership to adhere more to some of these things, I guess. maybe. Well, it's... I don't know. I'm thinking Timothy was needing to appoint elders as well. Okay. But, you know, with Titus, he does come out and say, I think it's Titus 1.5, yeah. appoint elders in every city. And we don't have the command to Timothy that way, but why would he give him qualifications if he wasn't in the position of needing to appoint elders and deacons? Uh, and that reminds me of another dis- difference. Titus, we don't find any qualifications for deacons in Titus. Right. But there are a lot of similarities, too. They're both working in areas around the Mediterranean Sea. They're both mm-hmm. following up on work that Paul seems to have done. Both letters are written around the same time. Both letters are addressed to men with a Gentile background who are apprentices of the Apostle Paul. There's, there, there are a lot of similarities there, so I think it's going to work out well. And the qualifications are very similar, almost almost exactly alike. Right. All right, let's, get, let's start with the elders, and I'll read. I'm going to just read them as Paul gave them. Later on, we'll do a little exercise where I've categorized them to the best of my ability, and we'll see how that works out. But for the reading, we're just going to go in order, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Note that he refers to the office of the elder as overseer. More on that later. Uh, he says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Uh, King James has their filthy lucre, I think. Mm. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he might not may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And so that's First Timothy three verses one through seven, the qualifications of an elder. Mm -hmm. Now, rather than just continuing to read the qualifications of a deacon, I'm going to jump over to Titus chapter one to kind of fit this into our little outline. We're still talking about elders. And here's what we come to as we read Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, Lost my place. This is embarrassing. Okay, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Again, another King James turn of phrase. Uh, He must be able to convict the gainsayers. Man, this is great. That's three now. Yeah. If you include vain really jangling. Vain from... jangling, filthy lucre, and convict the gainsayers. That's great. I hope I'm right. <laughs> this is, I think that's the King James. Now, he the, the next part of, um, of Titus 1 
is not exactly qualifications for elders, but but it flows out of why I think you were saying this a moment ago. It kind of comes out of why he's giving these qualifications or why these qualifications are so important. And he turns to the environment in which Titus specifically is working in Crete. And he doesn't have right. a lot of nice things to say about uh, the Cretans. Oh, no. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So these are the people, maybe they're Christians, but they're saying to be a good Christian, you've got to follow Judaism as well as Christianity. I mean, that's an mm-hmm. oversimplification, but he's saying these kinds of things. Uh, Paul says in verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, now he's quoting a poet here, uh, he says, one of their own poets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Does that sound familiar? Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As I was reading that, I was thinking Andrew and I are probably going to come back to that and do that later, because when you get to Titus 1, verses 10 through 16, that's... You know, he's moving away from qualifications for elders into something else that really deserves uh, treatment in a different episode. But I saw the connection. It was kind of like he was saying elders need to be able to instruct those who contradict the word. They need to be able to teach sound doctrine. They need to be able to teach because they're going to face these false teachers. Uh, Let me go back to 1 Timothy 3 and read the qualifications for deacons. And remember, this is just right behind the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then he gives some qualifications for wives, which is really interesting because he didn't do that with the elders. Mm -hmm. But he has four, I think, for the wives. The wives, verse 11, likewise must be dignified. So there's a repetition from what the deacons must be, dignified or grave, sober-minded. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, so what do you got, say? I say we've got our a similar list there for deacons and elders. Uh, several yeah. of those things overlap and need to be worthy of respect. Um, not drunkards, not greedy for dishonest gain, filthy lucre is what we decided mm-hmm. to call it. Um, and it's interesting, verse 9, the, there's a parallel to this one with the elders as well and being able to teach. But it says in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Um, does that necessarily mean teach, though? I don't think it does. Well, I think it's got something to do with... Um, maybe being the opposite of those false teachers from chapter yeah. one who wanted to talk about things that they, in verse seven of chapter one, desiring to be teachers without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So these are guys that don't, and they want to teach, but they don't have any knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so this, uh, in verse nine, this qualification for a deacon, this is somebody who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Mm-hmm. And, and know, the mystery of the faith is definitely the gospel, but holding on to that mm-hmm. and being convicted about it is different from, you know, teaching it. I think yeah. some can hold. I think you can hold it without teaching. Yeah, because um, I would yeah, say right. that you know, our last discussion had to do with women in worship and how they're not permitted to teach or exercise authority over men. But I would say that a Christian woman holds fast the mystery of the faith with a yeah. good conscience. Yeah. But uh, we, we're getting into our 
next segment here. So maybe we need to <laughs> take a breather. And uh, when we come back, we've got some very interesting things to talk about. I'm excited about this discussion. So hold on, and we'll be back in a minute. come back and talk about some of the things we want to think about here, I, I want to start by pointing out the very simple organization God designed for the church based on the New Testament. You notice there's no hierarchy here, no um, special headquarters set up in a mm-hmm. particular city somewhere in the world. There are no positions above that of the local elder in an in an autonomous congregation. The word autonomous is just a big word for self-ruling or independent. Um, what you have are elders in the plural over individual congregations. The only authority above them is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And that's it. Uh, of course, today, when you look at the religious landscape, you see a very different picture in a lot of places, whether it's a hierarchy or a board or a convention or a statement of faith or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. There's a lot of variety these days in how churches are structured. But since this is the inspired structure, I believe it's the best. Now, some people might say, well, I challenge you to show me in the Bible where God wanted elders ruling individual congregations and, and no board or council or, or authority above them except for Jesus Christ. There are a couple of verses, and, and the one we looked at in the reading, Titus 1.5. He mm-hmm. told Titus to um, finish what was started there. There were still some things that were lacking, and one of them was leadership. And he told him to appoint elders in every city. Now, I realize that city does not necessarily mean church. But I think that's what he means here. And even if even if he was saying, just make sure you have a group of elders in every city at the very least, even if it has two or three churches, I don't believe that's what he's saying. But even if it is, that's not what we're talking about, contrasting with in the world today. In the world today, you've got, you know, regions and even entire countries in some cases ruled by a board or by a religious leader. Yeah. Another good passage to look at is Acts 14.23, where... Um, you know, Paul and Barnabas are making a loop back through the churches they established on their first mm-hmm. missionary journey. And uh, it says in, in Acts 14.23 that they appointed elders in every church. Uh, so elders is plural. Every church is singular. So you have, you know, the group in in one church. And so there's a couple of things that I think we can point out from that. One being uh, the Lord never intended for churches to be ruled by one man. Yeah, the bishop or whatever. If you don't have more than one qualified man to serve as an elder, then you don't have an eldership. And you should work. You know, another question that comes out of this is, are churches scripturally organized if they have no eldership? Well, it depends on why you have no eldership. If you don't have an eldership because there's so much strife and jealousy and rivalry in your church, then that's not a scriptural church. But if your church is only six months old or a year old, or you happen to have a very young demographic, or if you just don't have anybody that uh, is qualified to serve in that capacity, yeah. then you've got to grow into that command. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, you'd be equally breaking. I mean, if you appoint somebody that's not qualified, right? then you're in trouble for What sure. are your options? And, you know, God yeah. uses common sense. Mm-hmm. He's the one that gave us the gift. Some of us the gift of common sense. Yeah. Maybe you know. I don't mean to include myself in that number. Yeah. I may not be. Maybe a little premature on that one. But uh, yeah, uh, that that's something I think that a lot of people don't think about is that the structure of the early church was very simple. And one major advantage of that is the problem of false teaching or apostasy. Mm-hmm heresy, whatever word you want to use. If my church is governed by, you know, all the way at the, 
a highly centra- centralized denominational structure that has one man at the top or a group of men at the top. And that group votes to move the church in a direction other than the Bible. The whole religious organization goes downhill, goes with that group. And we've seen that happen, you know, just earlier this year, I think the Episcopal Church split ways with the Anglican Church, their cousins over over the pond in Britain. And actually, it was the other way around. The Anglicans in Britain broke with the Episcopal Church, which is a, a tie that has existed for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and over the subject of homosexuality and, and other things. And actually, you know, the, the British were actually in a more conservative position than their American counterparts. So the whole church was going one direction based on a minority of views, and they broke it up to get more control. Well, if one church in this structure that we're looking at in the New Testament, if one church goes off the deep end, that doesn't affect the other churches Mm -hmm. if they're self-ruled and are using the Bible. So that's one advantage. There are probably some others, but we need to move on to other questions too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, The one thing I've got here... uh, I think one of these qualifications for elders that always gives us pause or that usually gets brought up in a Q&A type scenario on this stuff is the qualification. Well, there's a few, uh, but the one I want to look at here for a second is in verse two, he must be the husband of one wife. And there's a lot of study on a lot of different ends of this argument. Uh, But the question is, so what does this phrase, husband of one wife, mean? Does this mean you can only be married one time ever? Does this mean you can just have one wife at a time? Does this mean, you know, what what all does this mean? Uh, this phrase occurs four times in the New Testament every time it deals with the topic that we are talking about. Uh, here in 3.2, again with the deacons in 3.12, it's going to come up again in 1 Timothy 5.19, and then we've already read it from Titus 1, verse 6. Literally, in the Greek, it just means a man of one woman or a one-woman man. Yeah, that's my favorite translation, by the way, is one-woman man. Yeah. Uh, the word for woman and wife are the same. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, that's a much better translation than what we find in any of our English Bibles. Yeah. But I th- it, I don't know, does, does it change it for you? Uh, it's a little different than saying husband of one wife is a little different from one-woman man. Yeah. An emphasis. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, But basically, based on Alexander Strauss's book, Biblical Eldership, um, we have four options that we just want to run through real quick uh, and give you a little bit of of, uh, info on each of these four ideas behind what this could mean. Uh, The first one is that elders have to be married, period. So that would mean, well, if you're not married, if you're not the husband of one wife, you're automatically out because you're not the husband of any wife. Um, but uh, some things on the other side of that, 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, Paul outlines some advantages of staying single in serving the Lord. Um, but just because he gave an advantage to that lifestyle in that particular mm-hmm. situation, because uh, is it verse 25 of that chapter 26, he says, in the present distress... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. in view of the present distress. So some of those, I wouldn't say all, but some of the instructions that are given in 1 Corinthians 7 are given in light of that distress, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think okay. you're right. And Strauss brings this up too, and I'm really interested to see what you have to say about this. He brings up uh, the example of Christ. He brings mm-hmm. up the fact that Jesus was never married. And Strauss in his book, he he argues that this... Jesus wasn't an elder either. In Strauss's book, he argues that Paul does not command the elders have to be married. He argues that you can have a single elder. I disagree with that. And he comes back and he does mention Jesus of having no (laughs) wife. But he wasn't an elder and he was married. Yeah, to the church. Right. 
Yeah. Not Mary Magdalene, but uh, yeah. the the church. I was trying to throw you off on that one, but you're you're too quick to yeah. do the church. Well, yeah, I thought about yeah, that too. I mean, it's apples reading. and oranges. I mean, Jesus also died on the cross, so do all elders die on the cross? Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus was a pretty unique individual. Yeah, he was a hundred percent divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, elders are they God? I mean, you know, so. I, that's a weak yeah. argument when you think of it objectively. I mean, if you're really trying to get single men into the eldership. Well, and when you think then, about what the eldership is, my thing is I was reading that because I'd never thought of that before, ever. Mm-hmm. And so as I was reading that, you know, it was kind of challenging my thinking. And I thought, well, being an elder, you're basically managing the household of God, right? Basically managing mm-hmm. the household of God. So being mm-hmm. an elder is a lot more like being a father in a household than it is being a boss at a business. You know, right. this is about managing a house. And, well, and how can you have children if you've never married? Now I realize well, not all single people have never married. Well, that's what uh, I was going to Some are widows, you. but if you're not widowers. plugged into the family situation at home, uh-huh. you know, and Paul brings that up. He says, you know, how can someone manage, how can you expect yeah. to manage God's church if you can't manage your own house? Right. Basically. So, you know, it's pretty clear. Yeah. So I I do think, you know, there's, I would probably disagree with Strouch on this one from where I am right now. Okay. Uh, So what is possibility number two? Number two is elders must not be polygamous, which I think we can say. I agree with that. Of course. Yeah. But again, Strouch is saying he's talking about something else here, but he does say you can't be a polygamist. Obviously, yeah, and he uses this. I didn't like this. He says the same phrase is used for the wives of deacons, but it's just backwards. It's a one woman or it's a one man woman. She must be the wife of one man. That's I don't know if that's true. And uh, and, and I you know I have to say I've I've got a couple of books by Strouch in my library, and I do like him. I mean, yeah. I think he, he writes, well, he writes well. a lot of really good stuff. I but mean, this, you know, I'm having trouble with this particular phrase in his um, opinion about it. But I'm going to hear you out. Yeah, I well, need I, no I number can, three and number four. I can let you have this book. All right, number three. Elders, <laughs> elders may only marry once. Um, this is probably getting into where more of the questions pop up. So this would say if elders only marry once, this would mean if you have... If you're married and you have a scriptural marriage and let's say a wife passes away and the elder then marries another woman, uh, according to the line of thinking, uh, this line of thinking of elders may only marry once, that would disqualify a man from being an elder again if he were to... Or if he's scripturally divorced. Scripturally divorced and remarried. Yeah, any kind of remarriage. I know many people would disqualify him on that basis. Yeah. Let me just ask you this, just for the sake of of thinking here. This is me just thinking out loud. So, the to me, I mean, the word "one woman man" that seems it seems the emphasis at first in my head means okay, this is a guy who is for his whole life is what I'm thinking is one woman. That's my initial thought. But you know, I'm not going to say. Well, I'll, I'll see, see what for, you think for about me, it first. Now, this is really subjective because you and I are hearing that phrase in two different ways. So that shows us the danger and how we need to proceed with caution. Yeah. And and I was going to say this at the beginning. Look, people have disagreed over the meaning of that phrase mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. We're not going to settle it in this podcast. Right. But hopefully bringing up the, the nuances of the language and the possibilities, it may help people who are listening to, to form their own opinion, which is what we want mm-hmm. based on the Word of God. So... To me, the emphasis of the phrase one woman man is that this is a faithful husband in yeah. the present time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really talks about his having lost a first wife or having divorced a wife and having scripturally remarried. Yeah, I, I agree with so you. So I would say, now my, my personal opinion, and I submit to my eldership on differences here because I do think it's something where we disagree uh, at, at times. I'm not saying my elders and I disagree on this. Just uh, hopefully I'm coming through showing that I am submissive to my elders and yeah. I submit myself to their wisdom on passages like this. Mm-hmm. So, but 
I would say, if it were just up to me interpreting this, I would say that if a man lost his wife to death and he remarried, there's no reason why he shouldn't be disqualified on that count. Yeah. Or if he has even been divorced and, and he had a scriptural reason for remarrying, mm-hmm. according to Matthew 19, 9 and other passages, then, then I see no reason why he shouldn't be, unless there's a lot of people that object to it and they won't yeah. follow him. And then it becomes a practical thing about whether or not we should appoint an elder that people aren't behind. Yeah. That's a that's kind of a different issue. Yeah. And again, um, I think we've got to think about why why this is in place. You know, like we talked about with the first little uh, point here. Uh, we've got to talk about why this qualification is put there. And that leads us to the fourth little option here is that elders must be above reproach in their marriages. Uh, and he quotes this guy, Philip Towner. The point is not how often you can be married, nor precisely what constitute a legitimate what constitutes a legitimate marriage. Marriage, it is assumed that the marriage of an elder is legitimate, but rather the point is how one conducts himself in his marriage. It's a question of a faithful monogamous marriage, an exclusive relationship to one woman. So, I like that statement. Yeah, that's put better than I could put it, but that's how I feel. Yeah. yeah, I think I think considering why, you know, being the manager of the household, being the leader of the house, it makes sense to me. It, you know, and, and someone, I guess, of the persuasion of you can only have one wife ever, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear a little more from what they have to say. But from where I sit now, it is, seems to me like if a man is, you know, loses his wife tragically, um, and then remarries, or if he doesn't remarry, you know mm-hmm. what? If, uh, you know, are we going to make him step down because he's, you know, he's well, no I, longer you know, has that wife? Does he lose his experience and his credibility as a manager yeah, of a household yeah. if he's, you know, sixty-five and his wife dies? He's been married for forty years. Yeah, uh, you know, there are two issues here, really, and that is. One issue is, can he serve as an elder after he is remarried? And the other issue is, can he remain in office after his wife has died? Yeah. And as a single person. And there's a lot of disagreement over that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that churches just must do their best and follow their consciences on both of those. Yeah. And good men who are qualified for the eldership will understand if a church doesn't feel comfortable with him serving because of their particular subjective interpretation of this this uh, particular qualification. I know I sound like I'm saying that, um, you know, the Bible means one thing here and something else here, but that's not what I'm saying. I mean, just go out there and read the commentaries and think for yourself. There are a lot of opinions about this little phrase, and the phrase comes up, Numerous times, as you pointed out. Yeah, it's one little phrase, and it's called... I mean, and there are... You know, I'm sure, or I'm hoping that our listeners are at least chewing on this in their minds right now, because there's, you know, there's several different ways you can interpret it. Um, you know, with the let's, let's go over why there may be differences. So, does a wife help her husband when he is an elder? Yes. Big time. Big of course, time. yeah. Um, but see, I don't think that is, some people will say that's why that qualification is in there because the elder needs a partner to help him in certain situations I won't get into. Uh, but I don't think that's why the qualification is in there. I believe that behind the qualification is what you were saying a moment ago. It illustrates his ability to lead. It illustrates his faithfulness. Mm-hmm. It illustrates his commitment to a an important relationship and serving as an elder means relationships. I mean, that's the big right. thing. Yeah. So it shows that he can be faithful to another human being in the most intimate way. He'll be faithful to the brothers and sisters that worship with him in his congregation. I think um, that's a really good explanation. And then, you know, when it comes to the divorce situation, and some churches are uncomfortable with a divorced man who is scripturally remarried, they're uncomfortable with him leading, uh, they think that, you know, when you divorce and you remarry, you now have two wives. Uh, but I just don't share that opinion because I know you're not, if you have a wife, you're not supposed to marry a second wife. Yeah. And then, so I've asked people before, I'm like, how many wives does this guy have? This remarried guy, does he have two wives? 
No. Is he a polygamist? No. Okay, then he has one wife. And if he has one yeah. wife, he is the husband of one wife, or he's a one-woman man. And yeah. that, that issue seems a little more black and white than the, the one about the wife passing away. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you there. Do I we need to move on? Because it's uh, yeah, I don't know what you've got on our time over there. I mean, uh, we could we could talk about different angles of this for yeah, for it just, hours it'll and go hours, on and on and on. But we'll put a pin in it. If you got more, uh, if you'd just like to offer an opinion on that, uh, you can write us on Facebook or Twitter or on our website. You can leave a comment. Um, but we'll just have to put a pin in this discussion for now. Uh, do you have anything else, Drew, for this section, or have we already chewed up? Uh, there's time? a couple. Eh, I do. I do want to point out one thing that I kind of hinted at at the beginning of the the reading, where Paul says, "If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which can also be translated bishop, yeah, uh, he says he desires a noble task. Depending on your religious background, you see bishop, you might not think about an elder in a group of elders." Mm-hmm. That may be two different positions to you. In reality, the words, and don't let me miss one, but bishop overseer, uh, those are two different translations of the Greek term episkopos, mm-hmm. elder, and pastor or shepherd. All of those terms relate to the same office. Right. Paul uses them interchangeably when he uh, speaks about And Peter episkopos. does too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Peter Paul does that in Acts 20. He uses the term um, elder in verse 17. In verse mm-hmm. 28, he uses overseer or bishop, depending mm-hmm. on your translation. And in that same verse, he also uses the verb of poimain, which means pastor, shepherd. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Peter uses all three terms interchangeably in 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. It's really clear that in those days... You had elders slash shepherds slash overseers. That's all one office. Yeah. And uh, each, why do they have so many words? Well, there's a different emphasis for each word. I mean, to me, yeah. a shepherd is kind of a counselor teacher. Mm-hmm. A bishop is a ruler, you know, or an overseer. Yeah. And then uh, an elder is wise. He has experience and wisdom to apply some of the things like we've been talking about in this episode that require discretion. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a good reason for those three terms to be used. Unfortunately, we've twisted them and used them to separate out three different offices. Yeah. Um, let's see. That's Oh, one more thing. One more thing. Uh, so I was just talking about Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I want to I turn over there and read that okay. and get your reaction to something here in Acts 20. So... Uh, I've, you know, as we pointed out a minute ago, Paul is addressing the elders of Ephesus, which is the same group that Timothy is supposed to be working with in 1 Timothy. And Acts 20, 28 is kind of his farewell discourse to the elders of Ephesus. And he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for, that's that shepherding term, to shepherd or to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What do you think that Paul meant when he said to them that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers? What's your initial reaction to that? Initial reaction. Well, now you're going to put me on the spot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that he has, you know, kind of in the same way... um, you know, the Spirit enables us to do things, um, kind of go along with those qualifications. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Mm-hmm. So Very impressive. I would say, oh yeah, that I can memorize <laughs> those, yeah. Yeah, no memory device for that at all, just straight memorization. Um, but I would say, you know, I don't, and again, this is right off the cuff. So I'm sure whatever I'm about to say, you're going to tell me I'm wrong and explain to me why. But um, I would say that I don't think this means like the Holy Spirit came down like in the in the fiery tongues like mm-hmm. in Acts 2. Yeah, because said, when you first read it, elder, though. You're an elder. You're an elder. Right. That's what you think about that in Acts 2. You think about Acts 13 where the Holy Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas off for me. 
Yeah. That's the first thing that that I think of. But then we're looking at these qualifications, right? In uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Who uh, who came up with these? You know, the according to the Bible, the Spirit revealed the Word of God through apostles and inspired men, and we read that in our New Testaments today. So when you read the Word of God, you're reading the Holy Spirit, the byproduct of a miracle of the Spirit, even though that miracle happened 2,000 years ago, yeah. its power is still here yeah, in so the that, words. Yeah, so, yeah. I, so if, uh, the bottom line is, if we appoint elders and deacons according to these qualifications, then it's the same thing as the Spirit just saying, separate these men for this work. I mean, it's yeah. His Word that shapes us and, and we use to, to get these leaders. And so He's yeah. doing it, which makes these qualifications very important. I guess that's the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I definitely agree with that because what makes our elders elders now, you know? What would make the elders at your congregation the elders? Right. And, you know, in a sense, you know, well, we had a voting process. We had a this and this and this, our other elders decided. But ultimately, their qualifications were determined by the Holy Spirit. Right. So the things that qualified them were the qualifications set up by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point to bring out. All right. Well, we need to save some time for the apply section. So let's take a a breather. And Andrew's going to get his uh, dose of coffee for today. I don't know how you drink all that, man. I don't drink as much as you do. (laughs) Most Uh, of the time, anyway. So uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Every time I hit the record button, the next thing I always say is, "All right, I need to Let's get go a back new... and check that." We're here, you know. I got to change it up and do something different need a sometimes. Signature tagline. Mm. It could be all right. We're back. We could get t-shirts printed with your face on it with a little bubble that says "All right" coming out the side. The only bad part of that would be my face. <laughs> I don't think you want to wear that around. Well, Photoshop. Photoshop's a great thing. <laughs> yeah, we could add some chiseled features. Patrick could get hey, that. Hey, up. I want one of those chins with the, the cleft in it. If you could do that. When you I can't, but I'm sure someone can. Yeah, just a big square jaw and a and a chin with that little divot. We're going to make this right happen. Um, T-shirts. All right. All right. <laughs> So back to the Bible. What, what stuff, are we talking right? about? Okay, I don't know. We're talking uh, about elders. What, I want to do a little exercise with you to break up the monotony of segment three. Because right. we're always like lesson number one, two, three, four. You know. Yeah. Uh, so this is going to be a little different, and I I'm going to kind of quiz you. Oh, test good. You. Great. I'm going to read a somewhat subjective grouping of the qualifications, and then. First of all, tell me if you think those go together. And then secondly, tell me if they say anything regarding an elder's character or responsibilities or activities. Does that make sense? Do they go together and does it have to do with his character or his responsibilities? Yes. Okay. Here's the first grouping. Okay. And and I'm reading Titus and Timothy or yeah, Titus and Timothy together. So another thing that I've done is I've spliced together. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to get this group. Okay, and we'll do it with the deacons too. All right. All right, elders, first grouping. Above reproach in both Timothy and Titus. Husband of one wife in Timothy and Titus. Respectable, that's only in Timothy. Not a drunkard, Timothy and Titus. Do I need to keep saying where they came from? I'm just going to read. Yeah, you're good. You can just tell uh, So not that. a drunkard, not violent but gentle. Not quarrelsome or quick-tempered. Not a lover of money, must be well thought of by outsiders, must not be arrogant, a lover of good. It sounds like they all go together and that they're about the character. 
yeah of the elders but i think they do have to do with you know the personality and character of an elder like you said yeah um i also think they mean that an elder needs to be a good example to all christians oh definitely without yeah, with with the exception of the um husband of one wife line all the rest of them are things that Christians should and should not be doing. You know, yeah. Or should any Christian be below reproach or should any Christian be not respectable or, or yeah, drunk? Or violent. Yeah. These are all, you know, they're living their lives this way in front of their people, and that's more powerful than anything. You know, Peter said, don't domineer over the flock, but be an example. Yeah. So the elders are like the men who, and if I'm, and you can tell me if you think this is right or wrong or not, but I'm trying to think of like in Timothy's situation in Ephesus. Maybe there's so many people there who are of this false teacher, um, you know, club or whatever <laughs> they're doing. All, they've got a, you know, they have t-shirts too. Yeah. Um, you know, you got all these men that are teaching things that are wrong. All these men that are going after myths and genealogies, all these guys that are, uh, involved in different things and then now Timothy is going out and he's trying to find the men that are actually doing it right because mm-hmm. okay. he's thinking you know Paul's like or the spirit is saying how can we combat that yeah what what will draw people away from that to a sincere faith which is find men who are actually Christian men yeah so you know when I read these qualifications of elders and deacons I don't think these are like super Christian qualifications. You know, like, okay, to be a Christian, just like you said, you know, you can be drunk, you can be a drunk, you can be violent, you can be quarrelsome, you can love money. You I don't have to be well that. thought about. No, no, no. You were saying opposite <laughs> of these things. Yeah. You know, I, know what, I know what you mean. You don't have to be a lover of good, but if you want to be an elder, if you want yeah. to lead Christians, then you have to do all Right. That's not, yeah, that's not the way it was yeah. given. I don't think we have tiers of spiritual obedience here yeah we're talking, this is a list that everybody should is, aspire to yeah, yeah equally not just should that we have to you know this is these are things that that we should be striving for and that we should really you know not just be saying well that's an elders thing mm-hmm. you know this is this is for all of us listen to hebrews thirteen seven. Uh, it's about the elders remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of god Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So they are supposed to be examples. Okay, let's Definitely. let's go to the second grouping. It's shorter. Okay. You okay? Yeah, you're, I'm ready. You're one for one. Okay. Yeah, all right. Just two. Number one, be sober-minded. Number two, must not be a recent convert, both from First Timothy. Do they go together? I would say, yes, they have to do with spiritual maturity. So I'm going to say it's character, yeah. not responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So they need to be and not just seasoned in their faith, but they need to be, um, you know, that phrase, sober-minded. Wise. Yeah, they need to be wise. They don't need to just have been around for a long time because just because you're around doesn't mean that you necessarily get wise. Yeah. You know, there's more to gaining wisdom than just simply being present. Yeah. Um, Existing so, for long periods yeah. of time. Yeah, just because you have served your time living on the earth, that's not going to mean you're going to become super wise. Not every 60-year-old is a wise sage, you know. But right. I think there's... So that's why I'm just saying, you know, just... It's not like when you reach Just take a 60, look at our presidential election. Yeah, uh, yeah, there you go. I think there's... You know, sober-minded beings understanding things for how they really are, kind of, you know, thinking of things properly. Mm-hmm. So with, with some degree of seriousness, when it when it's time to get serious. Yeah, and if you and can you really do that if you're a recent convert? Yeah, and how many years makes you a recent convert? Would you say five yes. and below, or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's different for different people. But, yeah, yeah, you know, elders have to decide in a lot of matters of discretion. Mm-hmm. You know, they 
you know, they have to make those decisions for the con- congregation that your people are not all going to agree because they're human beings and they have different experiences that they come from and, and opinions. Yeah. But sometimes the Word of God has been silent on a particular issue that they have to make a decision about. And you don't want a newbie in there who's never made decisions like that. You need somebody who has a little experience. Okay, yeah. now the next one, just I put it out on its own, hospitable. Um, does that relate to character or responsibilities or activity or what? Can I say both? Or am I yeah, definitely. Can I say both? Of I'm course gonna, you can say both. I'm going to say both. I'm going to say Because you do need be... a certain personality to, yeah. to do the work of hospitality. Yeah. I'm going to say they need to be just by their own character, you know, by their nature, hospitable, eager to help people. But the eagerness also needs to be matched by the action of actually mm-hmm. doing it. Right. So I'd say both. Okay. Uh, here's the next one. Two of them. Self-control. Well, actually four. Self-controlled, <laughs> upright, holy, and disciplined. Definitely. Definitely go together and definitely character. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, I mean, I could have put that in the first list. So yeah. some of this is just yeah, subjective. But, yeah, I think all those kind of fall under that self-control umbrella, really. Um, I mean, we could have put the um, not violent, not quarrelsome, not arrogant. We could have put that in there with self-control, especially the ones related to temper and anger. Yeah. I think it's interesting he spends a lot of time warning people about appointing elders that have an, a quick temper or a tendency to get involved in fights and strife. Um, yeah. I think peace has a trickle-down effect. If your leaders are not peaceful, your congregation is not going to be peaceful. Okay, yeah. keep. we'll keep moving. Here's the next grouping. Able to teach, and he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, now that has to do with responsibilities. Yeah. Right. Which which responsibility? Teaching, have, right? Yeah, they got to teach. Uh, they need to be teachers, and and I believe that they at least need to have the ability to teach publicly. Yeah. I you know years ago before I was here at this congregation, um, an elder told me that he meets that qualification because he teaches his children, and in his home, he says I I do you know I teach privately. I don't I don't teach publicly. But Paul said something to Titus that causes me to disagree with that. I mean, he says you need to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And I think rebuke in this sense is a public forum. No, you're making a face. Oh, I'm just I'm trying wrapping my head around that comment. Of, like, oh, OK. At home. And it's I'm going back to thinking of an eldership like being you know, the leader in the house. What if I told, I'm just trying to think if I told my wife, look, I don't have to teach my kids at home because I teach. <laughs> yeah, turn for, it up. I teach for a living. I'm a youth minister. Yeah. I teach at church. If he ever so wants some advice, ability. he needs to come on into the auditorium and hear a sermon. Yeah. I and I'll address all of that teach. publicly. Yeah. I have the ability to teach, but that's all I need. I have the ability. I can do it. Everybody that can speak and that can think has the ability, you know, to tap in to teach, but not, you know, I mean, anybody that can sit down and study and read and learn and then speak about what they have learned has the ability to teach. But I think we're talking about something more. Are you able to speak? Are you willing to do it? Yeah. All right. You know, are you good at it? Able. Able to teach, does that mean he... I, it certainly doesn't mean that every elder has to be a pro at it, or right. if whatever that means. Uh, I'm just balancing this out because we said a lot. I don't want people to think all of your elders need to be expert teachers and just, you know, spellbinding in the pulpit or whatever. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm just... But they you know, do need to be... I guess I would say that they need to be able to, you know... And I think this is the case uh, to be able to, when they speak, people will listen and will learn. You know, yeah, so there have, you're getting into character. It doesn't have to, to be, be, it doesn't have to be the most riveting 
you know, um, messenger. Yeah, that, like I'm not thinking of. You know, sometimes you don't learn anything when you have somebody who's up and is real entertaining when they speak, or real right interesting to listen yeah. to when they speak. But you can have somebody who gets up and maybe is not real flashy and entertaining, but you still learn a lot. Mm-hmm. So can and this able to teach? You have a lot of things wound wound up into that. You know, can you? Can you relate to people? Do you know where people are in their lives? Can you reach out to where they are right now? Can you have, you know, can you work up some way to encourage them or to teach them something? Mm-hmm. And Okay, I we're running out of time, and yeah. I'm, we weren't fair to the deacons. Um, Sorry, deacons. We, we, see, we have a little time to talk about them. I just, I don't know if I want to do this exercise on the deacons because it pretty much, you know, put all their qualifications together. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the nature of deacons, even comparing them, contrasting them with elders. Okay. Uh, I think we should point out to begin with that the word deacon is translated from diakonos, which is a common word for servant or minister that's used in a lot of places in the New Testament, only four or five times in two different passages, Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3, is it used in its official sense of the office of the deacon, capital D. The rest of the time that word is used, it's it's used of Christ in Matthew twenty twenty eight. It's used uh, in a lot of places just to refer to service, which means, according to what the title is, uh, deacons are special servants that mm-hmm. organize the work under the eldership so that it gets done. Now, I know I'm rushing here, but I also want to point out something very interesting what difference? So I'm here. I don't know why today I'm asking you questions and putting you on the spot, but it's right. fun. It's fun to me, not yeah. maybe not to you. I'm but you sweating. do that to me. I'm just sweating a little bit over here. You're now. like, you're always like, well, Drew. I, I just let me get your feedback on this. Uh, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Yeah, you, know, you just say something like that. So yeah, I'm getting you back. back. Yeah. What about the differences between the qualifications for elders and the qualifi- qualifications for deacons? Did you note any of the differences? Um, There's a couple glaring ones, big ones. Okay, well, my mind is immediately drawn to their similarities. I just noticed, you know, man, these are these are very closely related. These are very similar. So well, I guess we're so we're so out of time. Uh, so first of, of all, nothing about a deacon needing to teach, right? right? Able to teach, not there. Uh, second one. Nothing about, okay, so the wives are given qualifications. Yeah, for the, and the elders are not. Yeah, that's And the, the elders' difference. wives, they're not mentioned at all. Yeah. And I thought about that, and it occurred to me that there's a very good reason for that. A lot of the elders' work, he can do on his own. Um, you know, some might say, well, hospitality, he could use, he could certainly use the help of his wife, and his wife is very helpful, but it's possible for him to do pretty much everything that he's asked to do on his own. But with deacons, this service that they're expected to do, um, you know, requires a wife in a way, I think, different from the elders. You know? Yeah. Um, deacons are more so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of back when, you know, those first deacons or likely the first deacons were appointed to where, you know, the apostles say, hey, we're going to devote ourselves to praying and studying the word and we need some men to feed these widows. And so, yeah, there's more logistical things involved, I guess. Yeah, and service-oriented, which keeps it out of conflict with the end of 1 Timothy 2. Yeah. We talked about, you know, because, you know, anyway, there. I wish I had more time to talk about that. There's one more thing that I feel like I need to get in on the differences. And uh, one major difference is while both are required to have children, in one case, the children have to be Christians that's the elders. Mm-hmm. And with regard to the deacons, their children are not required to be Christians. It just says uh, managing their children and their own households well. I think that's a major difference because it means a younger man can fulfill the obligations of the office. 
But you have to have some age on you to have children that are old enough to have obeyed the gospel. Yeah. Well, well, I wish yeah, I could say a, more on that. We're yeah, there's a lot. I got totally a lot of, out of time. Yeah, I can tell you're holding time. back. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll do a part two of First Timothy three. We could. We're lucky. Actually, we're lucky to have had the time to do part one. So yeah. we'll we'll do another one, but it won't be part two. It'll be something about First Timothy chapter four. In the meantime, keep the podcast alive through discussions or uh, sending us some feedback or maybe. Uh, uh, you know, passing it on to somebody else. Uh, we, we'd love to hear that this is helping people, and we want to keep doing it for that reason. And so uh, keep tuning in, spread the word about it. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 4.